Well, if you would, turn to uh, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we began Romans uh, last week, and this morning we're going to pick things up in verse 7 and read verses 7 through uh, 17. As you're uh, turning there, as we're going to turn our attention there, uh, maybe prepare you a little bit uh, like this. At our house, usually it's, it's my wife, 98% of the time that gets the mail. Uh, once in a while, we'll send the kids, one of the kids out there for feeling real lazy, and sometimes I'll get the mail. And when I get the, the mail, usually it's not really that much of a stack of stuff, but it's pretty easy to go through it. There's usually two categories of mail that you get. You get the, the personal mail and the impersonal mail, okay? You get the impersonal mail. That's the, uh, hey, we got a credit card that we'd love for you to sign up for, or hey, there's a sale going on this week, or hey, here's a $5 off when you spend $1,000 off at our, at our store. We'd love to have you come and, and use that, and usually that just gets thrown away. That's easy to deal with. Then you get some personal mail. Uh, you know, if you're in our house, you'll get a, a, a letter from my mother-in-law, which has some coupons and some article, newspaper articles clipped out, or a Sunday bulletin. Uh, or maybe a birthday invitation uh, for one of the kids. Uh, once in a while, we'll get a couple checks for a million dollars or so, but that's, you know, doesn't happen too often. And you get a lot of bills, stuff that needs to be paid, doctors, things like that. And um, sorry about that. Came unplugged. Um, Personal mail is great because it's addressed to you. It has relevance to you, and those are the things that you keep, and those are the things that, that matter. As we are about to read these uh, verses here, Paul is going to be personal. Uh, if you're familiar with uh, the book of Romans or heard a little bit about maybe its reputation, uh, it, it tends to have this reputation where it's it's theology, 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 doctrine, 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 this uh, it, instructions that Paul is, is giving, and it can feel very impersonal, feel like it doesn't really, uh, uh, he's not really talking to uh, people, he's just laying out uh, arguments. Well, these verses kind of solve that in the sense that Paul is being very personal. Uh, he's writing kind of pastorally, he's writing uh, from his heart and from his uh, sense of, of desire and care and concern uh, for these uh, folks. And so with that uh, being said, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read verses uh, 7 through 17 uh, here this morning. Romans chapter 1, 7 through 17. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be His holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because of your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how I constantly remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart, impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, 
in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to the Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from the first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is God's word, and it's absolutely true. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we uh, ask that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see all that you are and all that you are for us. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. Kent Hughes tells the story of the conversion of a man named uh, Joseph. It took place uh, leading up to uh, and around World War II. Uh, Pearl Harbor had just happened, and many individuals uh, decided to enlist in response to that uh, event. And uh, you had one individual named Emery who uh, found himself uh, serving in the Coast Guard. And Emery one day is uh, at work, so to speak, and he knows that he's going to be on uh, call, so to speak, to serve the front gate uh, all night. He's got to do an all-nighter. Uh, watching the front gate, and so he takes a nap. He's relaxing in his room, resting up because he knows it's going to be a long evening. And his roommate comes in, roommate Joseph, and uh, he's all clean, looking sharp, smelling good, and he's about to go out uh, for the weekend. And Emery asks him, you know, what's, what's going on? You kind of look, you know, you smell good, you look nice. What's, what's going on? Joseph says, I've got a weekend with this woman I've met. It's going to be a great time. We're going to have a lot of fun. Emery's like, that's great. Joseph is walking out the door, and Emery says, I'll pray for you. Joseph does a double take, comes back, sticks his head in the door, says, what what do you mean you're going to pray for me? Why would you want to pray for me? I'm I'm going to have this great time with this this gal I met. What, What are you doing to me? And Emery says, well, you know, sin doesn't leave us unchanged, and you're going to be a different person after this weekend. And Joseph just kind of blows him off, and he goes on his, on his way, and Emery gets ready for his night and what he's got with his responsibilities. And sometime later on that evening, Joseph approaches Emery there at the front entrance, and Emery's like, what? I thought you were gone all weekend. He's like, what happened? He's like, you totally ruined my weekend, okay? You said you're going to pray for me. How can I have a good time when I know that you're praying for me. And he basically says to him, you know, how can I find God? And they had this long conversation uh, about Christ and about salvation. And uh, Joseph puts his faith and trust in Christ. And he's a changed person. He's converted. He starts reading his Bible. He starts going to church. He starts meeting with his pastor and just learning and growing uh, in the faith. Now, you, if you're like me, you hear these stories of, of conversion and uh, how people come to a, a knowledge of Christ and how God has, has changed their lives. And sometimes it, it happens in a flash like that, and sometimes it's, it's more uh, of a process uh, in our lives. And that's kind of the feel as we, as we read this passage with, with Paul here in these beginning verses here. He's excited 
He's encouraged by what's, what's going on in Rome. Yes, he's never been there. Yes, he doesn't, he doesn't know the terrain. He's never met these people. He doesn't know uh, who they are and what they do every day. But he's excited about what God is doing in their lives. He's excited about what God could be doing uh, in the city of Rome. He's excited about these new churches and, and, and the promise that they, they hold for this, this community and this place in the gospel. And it's with that encouragement, with that, with that uh, excitement that Paul is, is writing this letter and we see it bleeding out in this text. What I want to do with this passage is, is answer one question from it. How does this, or what does this passage teach us about the Christian life? What does this passage teach us about the Christian life? There's three things that I think it teaches us at least, or three categories. The first thing I think it teaches us is it has a lot to say to us about prayer, the nature of prayer in our lives and what it means to, to, to know him and to follow him. Look at verse 7. Because the first thing I think it teaches us about prayer is that God is near. God is near. He says in verse 7, I thank my God. Paul is saying, I thank my God. You go to his other letters that he's written, like either Philippians or Corinthians, he'll introduce it the same way. You'll hear that phrase, my God. Either I'm going to my God or I'm thankful to my God. It's It's personal. God is not far off. God is not some thing. He's not some idea. He's not some abstraction. But there's a sense of relationship there. My God, I know this God, and He knows me. For example, at the end of Philippians in verse 19, Paul uh, says to them that they should not worry. They shouldn't worry about Him because He says this in verse 19 My God will supply every need of yours according to His riches. It's like Paul is saying, just, that, just as God has met my needs and has been faithful to me, so he's going to be faithful to you as well. He's saying to us that God is personal. God is near. He's not aloof. He's not at a distance. He's holy. He's majestic. He's, he's just. He's right. He's true. He's beyond our, our, our fully understanding him. But that doesn't mean he's not near. It doesn't mean he's not close. It doesn't mean that he is not with us. And that's one of the first things we learn about prayer. God is close. Something else we see here and we learn about prayer is that prayer and ministry go hand in hand. Prayer and ministry go hand in hand. Verse 9 again. God whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son is my witness how, I, how constantly I remember you. When he says, how constantly I remember you, what's he talking about? He's talking about prayer. He's saying to them, I pray for you a lot. I pray for you consistently. And I'm not just saying that. God knows how much I pray for you. He's heard those prayers. He knows those lists. He knows what I've said to you. Now think about it like this. Here is Paul the Apostle. He's a busy man. He's got letters to write. He's got churches that he has planted, churches that he's concerned with, as, the, as they're growing and shaping, he's concerned with, with struggles and conflict that's going on. He's concerned with doctrinal issues that need to be worked out and dealt with. He's got his own plans. I want to go to this place. I want to go to that place. I've got this money that needs to be delivered. And what is Paul doing? What is Paul spending his time doing? Praying for these people that he doesn't know 
He knows them, but he does not know them. And he's saying, it's worth it for me to pray for you because prayer and ministry go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. In other words, prayer, Paul is saying that prayer is work. Prayer is the work of ministry. It's part of the work of ministry because we believe the Scriptures when it says that God answers prayers, that God hears our prayers. Over and over we're commanded to pray, to seek His face, to be dependent upon Him, we don't do that just to uh, uh, appease that idea, to appease our guilt, but we do it because God works in, our, in and through our prayers. He uses us. Prayer is important. So my simple question to you is, do you pray? Do you pray? Do you seek His face? Do you see prayer as ministering to other people? Do you see it as vital or you see it as a luxury when things get stressful or when things get really difficult or when I get a bad doctor's report or there's financial stress that's going on. But do you use it? Do you pray to God because he's using your prayers? He wants to hear from you. It's why we do a, a monthly prayer meeting. Uh, we're not doing it because we're bored, but we're doing it because God wants to answer our prayers and God wants to use our prayers it's why we circle up and gather and spend maybe a half hour, 45 minutes just praying. It's why we're doing this prayer chain, because we want to seek his face. We're trusting that he's going to answer these prayers and he's going to work his will uh, in our midst. The last thing we, we learn about prayer is that prayer is, is how prayer works in relation to our plans. All of us have uh, maybe things on our, on our prayer list, things in our head we're asking God to, to, to answer, to, to work this out, and there's a sense of urgency. You know, it's, it's a health concern, it's a, it's a marital concern, it's a, it's a child uh, raising concern. There's some kind of issue there, and it's, it's pressing at God, you've got to answer in big ways. We need really to, to work and, and to make something uh, happen there. My question is, in the midst of those kinds of prayers, where you're praying for something that's outside of your control, what's your posture in those prayers? What's your expectations? What are your, your hopes with that? How, what kind of attitude should we have uh, there? But it's, it's clear in this passage that Paul wants to go visit these people in Rome. Uh, he, he says, guys, I love you. I'm excited about what God is doing in your midst. I want to come and visit you. I've got a number of reasons why I want to see that happen, but I haven't been able to make it yet. I've been hindered by this or by that. Um, and it's not like Paul has tried just to do it once, but it seems like more than once he's tried to go there. More than once he's, he's prayed, and God has prevented him from that happening. And all of us find ourselves in situations at one point in our lives when we feel like, God, you're not answering. You're not responding. Why am I feeling like you're saying no? Why do I feel like you're opposed to this? Why do I feel like it's just a meeting with silence and things are just not working out? how do we respond in those situations? That's what Paul is feeling. This is not working out. This is, I want, this is on my agenda. This is on my to-do list, and it's not working out. What's his attitude? What's his secret with that? I think his secret lies in that his ultimate posture before the Lord is one of submissiveness. He's submitting himself to the will of God. He wants to do it. This is my desire to, to do this and come and visit, visit with you. I know it would be great, 
be good for the church there, it'd be good for me spiritually, it'd be good for the glory of God, but God hasn't done it yet. And so that frustrates me, but I'm going to trust him in the midst of this. All of us have things where God has said no to us. And sometimes we can look back at those no's and we're like, thank you that you said no. That would have been a disaster of a relationship or a disaster of a situation. I just didn't see it coming. But some of us have no's in our lives and we still don't understand it. In the midst of those no's or those disappointments, are you able to say, God, I trust you. I don't fully understand. It's hard for me but I'm going to trust you with it. Are you able to, to submit uh, to his uh, will with those things? Those are some things we learn about prayer. I think this passage teaches us more about the Christian life as it relates to uh, the church. And there's two things I think we see with the church here, that the nature of the church is one of giving and receiving. Giving and receiving. Look again at verse uh, 11 and verse 12. Paul says, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. There's two things I think we, we see here, that the nature of, of the church and how it's, uh, it can be a relationship uh, among his people. The first thing is that, that Paul wants to, to give. He wants to give to them some kind of, of spiritual gift. And the question for us is, well, what is he talking about? What does he mean, this spiritual gift? What, what's the nature of that, that, this thing that he wants to impart uh, to them? I think, in essence, that gift is what he's doing in this letter. That he wants to impart to them uh, a deeper sense of faith, encouragement from his word. That he wants to, to see them, them deepen in their walks with the Lord. In other words, is it, Paul is saying to them, conversion is great, but conversion is the first step. Uh, this is the first step towards a, a journey or a walk, a relationship with the Lord. And Paul wants to take them into a deeper spot, a deeper place. He wants to see them cultivate and, and grow richer in that relationship, understanding who God is and, and what he's done for them and what it means for them as they, they live this life. Think about it like this. In my Bible, uh, the book of Romans is 15 pages long, okay? 15 pages long. Uh, on my bookshelf in my office, I have one commentary that's on the, one commentary just on the book of Romans that's 1,000 pages long. On my bookshelf, there are 14 volumes of sermons just on the book of Romans, okay? What are those books doing? They're taking uh, Romans and they're digging in to God's Word. They're taking it and expand, expanding it and expounding it and, and saying this is how it relates to you and this is what it means and this is what we're to do with that, going deeper with it. That's what Paul is, wants to do with them. He just wants to, to go deeper with them, uh, to, to grow, in their, to see them grow uh, in their relationship with Christ. But Paul wants to do something else, and I think we also learned something else about the nature of the church and God's community in our lives. He wants to give to them, but he also wants to receive. He wants to get from them. He wants to receive from them. You see that in verse 12. He wants to be encouraged in the faith by them. He wants to see them living the faith. He wants to, to see what God is doing in their midst, and that strengthens him. That encourages him. He sees himself as saying to them, I need that. I need to see that happen. The Apostle Paul, 
The, the, the guy that was blinded by God on a road, the guy that, that's written so many letters in the New Testament that is so close to the Lord that's been used by God in so many ways, planting churches, is saying, I need you, church. I, I need you to speak into my life. I don't care where you're at spiritually. Uh, we need other people. Uh, the, the nature of, of the church is, is a relationship, a, a, a give and take where you're known and you're being known. It's one thing to, to listen to a church service or watch a church service on TV, and that's great. But that's not church. There's so much more to it than that. Uh, for some of us, we spend all week long not connected with other Christians, not around other believers, just because of the, the nature of our work and the nature of our schedules. And we need these moments where we can gather with God's people to be encouraged, to be strengthened, to hear other people praying, uh, to, to, to hear and, and to sing with other people singing these great hymns, confessing our sins together, confessing our, our, our faith together. We need to receive from other people. We need it to be in our lives. The third thing we see in this passage, the third thing I think this passage teaches us about the Christian life is the power of the message. Paul is making it clear the power of the message. We all know that if you believe something, it's going to change how you live. It's going to change how you do life, so to speak. For example, if I get a, a, an email and it says it's from the White House, and it says, we want you to come speak at the prayer breakfast. I'd be like, delete. That is not true. That's not happening. But say I get a phone call that follows up that, and they say, I'm blankety-blank with the White House, and we want you to come and, and uh, be a part of this, this prayer meeting and do this or that. I'm going to believe it then, and it's going to change everything. I'm going to get a haircut. I'm going to start thinking about what I'm going to wear. Uh, I'm going to think about my message. I'm going to think about my words. I'm going to think about what, what I need to, uh, what's going to happen there. I'm going to think about how do I get my wife there and my kids there because I want them to be a part of that. My point is that when you believe something, it changes how you live. It changes your lifestyle. It changes your decisions. It changes what you, you think is in, important and unimportant. And that's what we see Paul declaring here in this passage, especially in verse 17. He says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as is written, the righteous will live by faith. Think about that word gospel. The, the Greek for that literally means good herald. Literally, it means good herald. That's why we call it today good news. It, it, the gospel is not good information. It's not a good philosophy. It's not good advice, it's not uh, a good story, but it is good news in the sense that it's, uh, it's a truth that is being heralded, it's being announced, it's being uh, spoken to you. It's saying this is something that has happened in real space, in real time, in real history, and it has implications for you and how you live today. Are you going to let that change you? The gospel is saying that you can know the peace of God the joy of God, that you can be reconciled to Him, that you can know forgiveness. And I think what gets often overlooked is that you can know His righteousness. The gospel is the righteousness of God. When you think about gospel, most of us think forgiveness, and yes, you're right. 
But it's so much more than that. It's so much more than being forgiven. Imagine that you are in jail, and the, uh, the governor looks at your, your file. It's like three inches thick. And he looks through it, and he says, okay, I know they've done all these things, but I'm going to pardon them. And you're free. You're out of jail. You get to go and live your life. You've been forgiven. What does that mean? It means that you're just on a level playing field with everybody else. You've still got to go and, and put your own life together, a place to live, a job to find, new relationships, new community. How are you going to be a part of all these things? You've been forgiven, but you've still got this life that you've got to put together. When the gospel comes into our lives and when we hear this good news, we hear this announcement, it's announcing to you, yes, your sins have been forgiven, but it's like it's announcing to us as well, you get to live in the governor's house. You get to use his name. It's like he's saying that you've won the lottery. You get the, the, the medal of honor. You have all this recognition now. Your sins are not only forgiven, but you get this honor. You get this rightness, this righteousness. Imagine if the gospel was just forgiveness. You sin. You go to the Lord. God, I confess I did X, Y, and Z. He's going to say, you're forgiven. And then what's he going to say? You need to do better next time. You need to make this right. But the gospel is not just forgiveness. The gospel is the righteousness of Christ has been given to you. You've been made right with him. Your slate is clean, and everything that's true about him is now true about you. One of my favorite verses is, for, is 2 Corinthians 5.21 for this reason. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What does that mean? It means that Christ was treated like he sinned. All of our sins were placed upon him. He got what we deserve, and we get what he deserves. We get his rightness. We get to be accepted by God. We get to be seen as righteous in his sight. Do you see the value of that? Do you see the beauty of that? Yes, you've been forgiven, but you've been given his righteousness as well. You've been given that stance, that, that you've been brought into that family belonging to him. Now, some of you hear the word righteousness, and you hear what I'm saying in this point, and you think, okay, you're losing me. You're talking theology, you're talking doctrine, you're talking these big words and these big concepts, and I just don't get it. I just don't understand it. Just because you cannot fully grasp it doesn't mean you can't understand and live out the truth and reality of this, that you've been more than forgiven, you've been made right with God. We go on vacation, we drive two to three, four hours in a car. I don't know how an engine works. I know it needs gas, I know it needs oil, but I don't know how a transmission works and the timing of things and all, that, all the things that go into that. I've got a phone in my pocket, I don't know how to develop apps, I don't know how cellular lines work but I use it and I enjoy it. I don't know how my car works, but I use it and I enjoy it and I trust it. Just because you don't know every detail about theology and every detail about the scripture doesn't mean you cannot enjoy the goodness of God. We don't preach a salvation that comes by, you're saved once you understand all the fine points of theology. We preach a salvation that's based upon faith in Christ for forgiveness God makes us right with him.
as we look at this book of Romans, as we dig into it, and as you're challenged by it, let it push you. Let it push you with understanding new categories and new concepts and new understanding this is who God is and what he has done for you. And let it dig into your life. Let yourself understand it more and try to apply it and try and work it out. Because God has done more than forgive you. And he wants to do more than just forgive you. He wants to grow you. He wants to shape you. He wants to use you. He wants you to grow and know that the peace of God, the joy of God, the life in God, the abundance that he offers all of us. And let's pray and ask that he would use us towards that end. Father, you have done and worked in ways that are beyond our understanding. You are a God of infinite goodness and infinite glory and infinite wisdom, infinite power. We are finite. We are small. Uh, we are weak. But you uh, see us and you say we're significant. Not because of what we've done, but because of what you have done for us. Father, we embrace the cross. May it be the thing that we boast in, that not only have you forgiven us, but you have made us right with yourself. You've given us a right standing with you, that we are your children. You're adopted into your household. It's why we can come to you and pray. It's why we can seek your face, and it's why we need one another. We pray that you would work this message, this good news, deeper and deeper into our hearts and into our lives. In Christ's name we ask. Amen.